Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, July 8th. We check in with Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief, to talk about the first glimpse of the economic impact of four months of nationwide lockdowns expected from the Liberal government today. She also gives us some insight into the story of the Canadian soldier who drove onto the grounds of Parliament Hill armed with weapons and a note. The Calgary Chamber is transforming its ninth annual Small Business Awards into a celebration of resiliency. We'll find out how you can nominate a local business when we talk with President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, Sandeep Lali. Next, we check in with our 770CHQR City Hall reporter, Aurelio Perry, for an update on the two-day public meeting on systemic racism in Calgary. With more than 150 speakers, the stories are powerful, but what's the next step? Airlines risk alienating customers and doing permanent damage as a result of their refusal to issue refunds for pandemic-related cancelled flights. Airlines say they can't afford refunds, but flyers say keeping their money amounts to giving them an interest-free loan. And finally, we talked to the co-author of a study that shows how grizzly bears in Canada have adapted to human behaviour in order to reduce their interaction with us. It's 6.42 and later this afternoon, Canadians will get the first glimpse of the economic impact of four months of nationwide lockdowns combined with billions of dollars of COVID-19 aid spending when the Liberals reveal their fiscal snapshot. With some details and some looks into this afternoon's uh, going on, Mercedes Stevenson joins us. She's Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, how are you? Excellent. We're lucky we get you two days this week. Oh, my pleasure. I'm always thrilled to be on. Well, thank you for joining us. Talk to us a little bit. I mean, I, I know we don't have details as of yet. It's expected later today. But what's this fiscal snapshot expect to give us today? So this is a first. We've never had a fiscal snapshot before. We've had budgets and we've had fiscal updates. This is much more limited. And the government says that's because they are not able to really tell what's going to happen with the economy in coming months, and they don't want to project as far out. And it's just been moving so much that they say um, they did not want to put this out before, which, of course, has been criticized by opposition parties who thought they should have done something sooner. But what we're going to see today, we expect, is around a $300 billion deficit. That is what private sector economists have been hinted at by the government, something in that ballpark. Um, not surprising, because remember recently, uh, the parliamentary budget officer pegged it in the high 200 billions. Um, so that's sort of what we're looking at. We'll get a sense of where they think the economy is going in the immediate term, how quick a bounce back is going to happen. Uh, we might get some information there on jobs and businesses. Um, so that's all we're looking at. To be honest, we don't know exactly what to expect because we simply never had a so-called fiscal snapshot before. Mm-hmm. I think we all we know is that it's going to be massive, right? And, and, and will they talk about more spending or potential more spending and, and maybe what they plan to do to pay down that deficit? Is that expected today at all? Well, that's a big question. I mean, they have to project forward a bit. So we have to get some kind of a sense of like, where is the spending going? Um, And they've talked about how they were starting to shift gears from just being in the moment of trying to get programs out the door and delivered to thinking about the future. And they've said that all options are on the table. Both Bill Morneau and Carla Qualtro have said um, that they are not looking at tax increases right now. Key part there is right now, because we know that the past liberals have talked about, in particular, raising taxes potentially on high income Canadians. 
But right now, they are not looking at that. They're not looking at how to get back to balance. I mean, they're very, very high in the polls. And frankly, the deficit isn't hurting them that way. And Mm -hmm. if they're a minority government and they can keep the support of enough opposition parties, uh, and some of those opposition parties like the NDP want more spending, they're relatively safe. But, you know, things can change in a moment when you're talking about a minority environment. So the question will be in part, um, some of these programs are expected to continue in some sort of version. But likely much more limited or to fewer people or less money or stricter criteria going forward in the future. So the spending is probably going to come down as we go out. Of course, that all depends on a second wave or not and what that does. Um, But if you talk to folks around Ottawa who work in the finance department, they will tell you that one of the things the government's looking at and kind of hoping for is that if this is a deep, fast economic shock and the economy bounces back, they won't have to engage in as many measures that would either be fine Finding ways to raise government income, like taxes, or finding ways to decrease government spending, Mm. like cuts. Okay. Well, we'll wait for that this afternoon. I want to switch gears before I let you go. Uh, I heard you on Global National last night with Donna Friesen. You got uh, an exclusive look that you were talking about at the letter written by that Canadian military member who smashed his truck through the gates at Parliament Hill, armed with multiple guns. What did it say, that letter? So this is a letter that he sort of hand-scrolled out at some point before he drove through the hall and, and smashed the gates with four loaded guns on him. Um, in it, he lays out a number of grievances. Some of them are personal, some are financial, and some are clearly anti-government, anti-Trudeau, anti-liberal. Um, he calls Canada a communist dictatorship. He says that he is angry about gun control. He is angry about parliament not sitting um, and government spending. He then details his own financial problems, talking about how he thinks his truck is going to be repossessed, um, that he can't pay for it anymore, and he's concerned about his bills, that he's lost his business. He talks about not wanting to end up like his father. We're not sure what that means, and that he just doesn't see another option. He's also very clear that he's doing this because he's, in, in part, not happy with certain government policies and he wants this to be a wake-up call or a change. I know that RCMP investigators are going to be very interested in all the different portions here, the portions that potentially talk about mental health, the portions that talk about political issues. Um, and at this point, remember, there are no terrorism charges, and not every attack in Canada gets those. Mm-hmm. We can only label it as that as journalists once the authorities do. Okay. Um, but there's some very interesting threads that I know investigators are following that come to light in the letter. So perhaps not the harmless, nice guy that he was uh, painted painted as at the beginning. We'll be we'll be following yeah, that one for sure. I, I would say some people painted him that way. Yeah, uh, we'll follow with you for sure. Thank you so much for joining us, Mercedes. Thank you. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Wall. The Calgary of Chamber this year, their annual celebration of small businesses, is doing a bit of a pivot to recognize the entrepreneurial spirit of our business community, the impact the pandemic has had on the city, and how businesses responded with grit and determination. To get out all the details on the big party and the celebration, we're joined by President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, Sandeep Lally. Hi, Sandeep. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, I think this is a great idea because, boy, the the business community has been through so much in this city, and that was pre-pandemic, and then throw (laughs) in three months of COVID-19, and uh, tell us a little bit of how you're going to celebrate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've been through so much, and I think what we came to here was to say, look, we've, you know, we've got grit, we've got perseverance, 
But more importantly, resiliency continues to be something that we shine at, and as you said, over the last few years as well, and especially through this pandemic. And so we wanted to recognize resiliency of business leaders, of different sizes of companies, because everybody was impacted. Mm -hmm. And the Calgary Chamber's always been here in these kinds of spots, right? So we're about 130 years old, you know, the Great Depression, wars, the flood, you know, everything like that. And so we thought this is just, you know, kind of building on that legacy, but also a point of recognition for our community, because oftentimes in our businesses, the leaders and the employees don't get that recognition. It gets into an isolated story and it doesn't come out. So that's kind of why we put forward six different categories. I love that. And, and you you know, you mentioned it, business leadership. So there's an award for leaders who showed compassion, uh, a forward thinking mindset during this crisis. Talk to us a little bit about that one. Yeah, and led with heart and, and with empathy. Leadership was so critical here because nobody really had a roadmap to this and and you're hearing that from everybody right we're building the plane as we're flying it and i'm not sure and i'm not sure and that vulnerability was fantastic to to see from business leaders but the what we learned through all our webinars and our outreaches with these business leaders whether they're large multinational ceos to a micro business it was all about talking to each other and building from the community so we wanted to make sure that we singled out that type of leadership style all of these awards have an inclusion and diversity component to them and also we have an inclusion and diversity award that's um, building from our small business week award that we had as well and so We wanted to make sure that the categories were inclusive. And so that's why there's a micro, small and mid-size and corporate. Mm -hmm. I love the Inclusion and Diversity Award. It's something we really need to focus on more these days and really pay attention to. Now, you're accepting applications so people can nominate businesses. Is that how it works? Yeah, you can nominate yourself. You can nominate a client of yours. You can um, obviously, you know, kind of say, I want to nominate this business and they're not a client of mine but they've done a great job and then obviously we go in and and, you know talk to that business as well but yeah anybody that's what we're trying to do a bigger community outreach with it we are looking for corporate sponsors as well so if anybody in the community wants to kind of get behind the resiliency experience um, this is a great way to show that as well but yeah no it's really is an outreach into the larger community any type of business, you know, will find a home here in these categories. So if I, you know, just as a, a regular everyday consumer go into a regular shop and I, I want to, you know, have them recognized, I can nominate them? Absolutely, you Great. can, because okay. you would have experienced them, you know, through their struggles and their, you know, changes and how they got their arms around you as a customer to provide that customer confidence that we've been talking about that's needed to get the economy moving. So those applications, you'll take them till July 31. And how do people send those in to you? Sure. They're available on our website, right on our homepage, calgarychamber.com. And then you fill it in. It goes into our system. And then then your job is done, short of us calling you and asking a few more questions. Fantastic. Yeah, okay, and that's, then the like awards that. are in September, but we're judging through August. Fantastic. You know, I'd be remiss if I let you go without uh, talking to you about how business owners are feeling right now. You know, as we continue to come out of this pandemic, what are you hearing? Is the business community feeling a little more positivity or is it really just still a, a super difficult slog <laughs> out there? 
You know, it's been helpful to have um, the way that the community spirit around Stampede has showed up. That's definitely helped businesses to be able to kind of get a bit more comfortable with the customers that are coming in and more customers to come in. But the framework coming out from the province was, okay, this is a little bit of a lay of the land. More details to come. We heard a lot about that as to how these jobs are going to get created. And, and then the other one is waiting on schools. But from a business perspective of consumer demand and consumer confidence, that seems to be increasing. Obviously, you know, we need to all wear our masks and wash our hands and socially distance. Mm-hmm. But people are starting to, to consume. We can um, even in, we did a piece this week on tourism for our tourism operators. You know, they're they're like, we're ready to go. Come, come, come. So. <laughs> Yeah. Get out there and spend our money, right? For sure. Yeah, for sure. There's a little bit of optimism. Good stuff. Glad to hear it. Thank you so much for joining us. Calgary's Resilient Business Awards are coming up. You can nominate through till the end of the month at calgarychamber.com. Thank you, Sandeep. That's Sandeep Lally, who, of course, is the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. 819. A two-day public forum is underway talking about Calgary's systemic racism problem. We're checking in this morning with our 770 CHQR City Hall reporter to fill us in on day one of that meeting and what's on the agenda for day two. Aurelio Perry joins us. Hi, Aurelio. Hi there, Sue. Thank you so much for joining us. How did day one go? I, I've read some accounts that it was is quite powerful to hear what people were saying. Yeah, it's quite emotional to hear some of the stories that people um, related, uh, a lot of them on the mistrust of police. Uh, you had young and old speaking. Uh, they, the public didn't get to speak until uh, it was around uh, just before 2 o'clock. It began the mo- in the morning with a panel discussion with several community leaders and uh, some of the things they've faced and also interesting comment from Teresa Wupau, who's a former CBE chair and a MLA. Uh, she says, consultations on this issue have been happening for decades. It's time for action, mm-hmm. that type of thing. So there's a lot of that. And then, like you say, the public started and some emotional stories about some of the experiences they've had um, due to their color being, maybe they feel, being denied jobs, uh, opportunities and then you had younger people as well speaking about their issues uh, about feeling unsafe with uh, Calgary police officers again uh, in schools and in the community that type of thing uh, saying you know school resource officers that you know police provide in the schools they shouldn't be there and they're concerned that you know black and indigenous students are treated differently in school than white students are. And some, you know, some emotional, really emotional stories that you heard from these people. With 150 people wanting to speak, we've got day two today. So expecting it to be an, another powerful emotional day from those sharing their thoughts and their experiences in our city? Yeah, it should be. Absolutely. I'm not sure. They wrapped up, I think, just after 10 o'clock last night, I believe. could be 10, 10.30 they wrapped up last night. I wasn't sure what time they finished, but they resume again this morning at 9.30 and they continue on. Uh, there's, you know, there's a feeling that they want action, like right now. Unfortunately, City Hall doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. There could be some things they do right away, uh, but you've, you've heard the message from uh, the councillors and those on the mayor saying yes it's time to listen and learn but also listen and learning means uh time to take some action so the mayor had said that uh this isn't just the time to listen 
can then feel better about ourselves by listening to what this happened so you have a better sense of it. It's time to take the learnings and then move towards action. Aurelio, was there, were there calls yesterday for defunding the Calgary Police Force? We know in Edmonton they're going to cut $11 million from their budget, saying it won't impact frontline, but it will start to you know, create teams of officers and social workers. Any talk of that and, and people you know, asking for that to happen here? Yeah, there was there was talk about uh, defunding police. Uh, there's one of the presenters was one of the persons that presented the petition to defund police. Um, I don't know if council would move at that right now or leave it to November's budget talk. Uh, that was one of the differences. Edmonton's public hearing was mainly on the issue of the defunding of police, whereas this is letting people talk about their experiences with systemic racism. Well, hopefully we'll see some action after we have our day two of this meeting today. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and we'll check in and and find out uh, the results of day two with you tomorrow, hopefully. Thanks, Aurelio. Thank you. That's Aurelio Perry, our 770 City Hall reporter. Coming up on 709, the pandemic has exacerbated the problems of racial injustice, isolation, frustration, and certainly higher unemployment. All of that combining to give people more time to be part and join in with the Black Lives Matter movement and air grievances. To open up this topic for discussion, we're joined this morning by a professor of sociology at the University of Windsor, Reza Nakai. Good morning, Reza. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. So what do you mean by this? Is it, It's opened things up, giving people more time to be part of the movement and a sustained movement. Is that sort of what the pandemic has contributed? That is one of the among many. You know, when you're looking at any kind of social movement, and in this case we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, people need some kind of resources. Uh, and these resources could be related to, in this case, the time that they have. And unemployment provided with, uh, them with significant amount of extra time. Uh, you know, when you are busy everyday life and you're working with, uh, you know, uh, working every day, managing life, providing for the family, if an urgent matter happened, you don't need, you don't have time to participate. That's true. When unemployment went up and when COVID came and government forced everybody basically through regulations, uh, asked people to stay home and uh, uh, stores closed, businesses closed, offices closed, people had extra time. And that gave them the necessary resource to participate and therefore increase the amount of uh, the duration to which the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration continued in the United States. And I don't think it's just United States in many countries, because COVID affected large group of people uh, in every country around the world. So there was extra time, and that's why uh, Black Lives Matter took international scope rather than just being the United States, uh, focused mm-hmm. on the United States. It really was the perfect storm, wasn't it? You know, we, it, we had a time when everybody was at home, and then the injustices that we, we kept seeing over and, and hearing over and over again about, it just got everybody thinking, you know, now is the time to do something about it. That's true. It's very important what you just said about injustices. You know, time is one element, but before anything else, I always think of social movement like uh, embers under the ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some form of grievance that has to be in place always. It has to be, let's say, extreme inequities, for example, in the case of the United States and blacks, 
case of Canadians, Aboriginal people, First Nation, Indigenous people, or any kind of uh, injustices or police, uh, police brutality, as was the case specifically. So those are the, that's the, what is the, uh, the uh, fire under the ashes. It's always there in the United States, in Canada, regarding Aboriginals and um, racial minorities, for example, uh, if you think about, about women in Canada and everywhere else. So these are there. Uh, but, you know, they need, you need more than these. You need something which, for example, sparks it first. And then and the, and the death of, of George Floyd, right? Uh, I'm sorry? The death of George Floyd, right? That, that was, um, yes. If you notice, all the movement or any kind of demonstrations or rebellion in the United States usually spark with something which was caught in camera. What was interesting about this case was when uh, the police officer pressed his knees on the neck of George Floyd, I, when I first time I looked at it, I had a, a gut feeling that he's looking at the camera as he's sitting on, the, on, on a hunted animal, which is a deer, mm-hmm. and taking a picture. It really had a negative effect in mm-hmm. terms of people who are supposed to protect you, and this is a defenseless person, and he's sitting there, and he's kind of smiling, taking, uh, uh, taking a picture, looking at the camera, staring at the camera. That was really uh, the spark. Now the ashes, uh, the, the embers start to, you know, grow and glow further. And this was important. But there was a couple of other things also helped this movement, which was some of them are related to uh, uh, COVID. A good number of them are related to COVID. Mixed messages were important. When people don't have a leadership who tells them what is the proper way of behaving, they are in a state of what you call normlessness. They don't know which, one, which is correct, which is not correct. And... Uh, under this situation, they make their own uh, choices. Mm-hmm. They make their own decisions. And, of course, we know very well in the case of the United States, there was a lot of mixed messages from President Trump, uh, from uh, World Health Organizations, and so on, uh, even from uh, U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, some of them say that, uh, you know, you should wear a mask. Others should not say that you should not wear a mask. And this kind of flip-flop resulted uh, in a perception of division among the the ruling elites, the government. And of course, in the United States, of course, the, the elites are generally divided around the party lines, which also help this movement and people make their own decisions. There was also, I think, another issue which COVID helped was anonymity due to masks. Right. I mean, that's very important because, you know, when you want to participate, especially as we notice the case of a Vancouver riot and others, police can always, uh, security forces can always find out who's involved, what kind of activities they were involved. And uh, CCT cameras, uh, cameras which are placed in every street corner, take a picture of individuals. And of course, sometimes uh, people are not careful enough to put their own pictures on their Facebook. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, masks kind of prevented that recognition, prevented people to be recognized, to be arrested, to be prosecuted, to be fined or imprisoned. So people now are more likely to participate under this situation, this condition, which increases the number of people, but also increases the duration to which individuals are involved. Um, the other thing I thought was also important was COVID due to uh, frustration that people were experiencing. You know, when you're sitting at home, and I felt like that for a while, you know, you cooped up in your own home, you are unable to visit the loved ones, you start to feel that you're almost under house arrest. Yeah. And you felt that like that too? Most definitely. And you feel useless, right? 
That's right. And this creates a frustration. And there was a lot of research. There were a lot of research showing that the level of anxiety and frustrations increased during the COVID. So people were getting, uh, and of course, in the case of the United States, uh, people were getting, uh, the black people were affected mostly because they were getting sick and receiving less uh, hospital services than any other group of people. Uh, and under this situation, people live under the state of endless suspension. Uh, when is this going to end? What is, uh, am I going to be sick? Am I going to die? Uh, and, and in addition to that, there was all kind of conspiracy theories. Yeah. It's created this uh, uh, not knowing what is true or false. All of them frustrated people. And they want action. They want some results. They want something to know what is going to happen tomorrow. So when the uh, the spark lit the fire, it was like a you know uh, forest fire. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who had time and uh, they didn't feel like they did, but they were not worrying about being uh, caught in camera. Uh, they were frustrated. Uh, they start to come into the street. So and true. And I think these were the general ingredients which were needed. And of course, there were a couple of other things which were generally available before, but also become important. Any social movement requires some form of organization. And in the case of Black Lives Matter, social media such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other uh, platforms help like-minded people to join together. Yeah, and the, get information from each other. The time was right for sure. I've, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. It's a fascinating discussion. And really, if anything good comes out of the pandemic, it's the constant attention and the focus on this movement that will perhaps allow for change. Thanks so much for joining us, Reza. Thank you, Sue, for having me. That's Reza Nakai, professor of sociology at the University of Windsor. 6.09 on your Wednesday morning. Canadian Airlines have refused to issue cash refunds for cancelled flights because of the pandemic, but could that cause some lasting consequences? We're joined this morning by the Associate Professor, Organizational Studies and Sustainable Commerce and Graduate Coordinator at the University of Guelph, Rumina Dalla. Good morning, Rumina. Oh, good morning. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, what is your take on this? Should the airlines be giving out the refunds to passengers that had their flights cancelled? Because that could cause financial ruin for many of these airlines. Uh, yeah, and that is the argument, right? That what do we do? I mean, if you, if you um, perhaps if you issue these refunds, uh, you know, the, the news stories tell you that there would be a financial catastrophe. But I, I was just sort of considering... Um, well, strategically, because there's so much attention being paid to uh, airline, uh, you know, loyalty programs and, and um, you know, repeat business and all that, perhaps it's important for us to consider what happens long term. Is there some goodwill to be gained by refunding the money now? And will that create more trust, uh, you know, more um, uh, more reliance or, or more, more loyalty um, towards the airlines, right? Um, because you know, if if if, if you're going to get, uh, if you're going to give an airline your money, you want to kind of know that you get the service and that if something um, gets cancelled, you'll get your money back, and that builds trust. So that's kind of where I was at: is is what what are the long term possible long term consequences of not getting your refund from a customer's perspective, mm-hmm. for example. I mean, as my mother always said, you can't get blood from a stone. So if there's no money, there's no money. You know, but also uh, on the flip side, 
really, what we have two airlines in Canada. So even if we are mad at the airlines because they didn't refund our money, we have been given a credit and we can fly later on. And we don't have that many options anyway. We don't. But, um, you know, what, what the customers, I think the, the challenge is the customer's perception is, well, we're giving you this money and we need the money to do other things with it. Um, right. So it's basically as far as they can, they, they, the argument is that uh, it's an interest free loan to help the airline survive. So what about me as a customer? Uh, what do I what what choices do I have? So vouchers are great, but they don't um, they don't pay for things. Right. I mean, they're not cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one way one way customers are, are feeling, um, you know, that that. Uh, that they they would really uh, sort of benefit from getting the refunds. Um, also, um, when the flights when the, when the airlines do fly again, how do we know that the fares will be comparable? Will they be lower? Will they be higher? Um, you know what what happens then because there's no certainty on that either. That's true. I mean, I certainly see both sides of it. I, I don't know what the airlines can do if if they're you know in financial trouble because they've gone from you know. Well, 100 to zero, basically, through the past three months. So is the thought then that the federal government should be bailing them out as well? Well, yeah, um, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't really know uh, very much about what the federal government is thinking about in terms of bailouts. But um, certainly in terms of um, the cost, if, you're, if you have less, um, you know, if, if you're not flying as much, perhaps your cost is a little less. My argument is just that have we considered the potential mm-hmm. long-term strategic implications of um, either, you know, of, of you know, dealing with customers with empathy, with care, uh, with compassion, like so many other industries have, right? I mean, most other industries, if they can't deliver the product to you, say you buy a car or something, and they are unable to deliver, the customer's expectations are that whatever the de- deposit or the money for, uh, for the purchase will be given back, you know, um, mm-hmm. in, same with hotel reservations and things like that. So um, so it just, I mean, just sort of uh, looking at it from a, from a customer's perspective that, uh, Perhaps there are some long-term benefits. It, it may be difficult at the moment, but perhaps long-term, uh, or even give customers some other options. Saying, you know, maybe there are some creative solutions that we haven't considered. Some kind of, uh, you know, potential investment opportunities for customers. Anything that that allows the customers some some understanding that the airlines are considering their needs as well. Yeah, right? I, Rather than saying, no, not at all. Yeah, and, I, I mean, know. you're right too. And, and brand is everything, right? And when you, you know, when you, you tick off the customers, as much as they really, we don't have a choice too much in Canada, you don't want people to be angry. I mean, I, I for the most part, pick one of the airlines over the other when I fly. So I guess that can certainly be, you know, a product of this, couldn't it? Yeah, loyalty is so important, and in business schools, we try so hard to to focus on or, and teach that right the loyalty to the brand and 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 how much goodwill uh, counts. So you know, so if there are if there are challenges, you can count on your reputation and the goodwill of customers to see you through the tough times. So those kinds of considerations. But you know, uh, 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 my guess, my 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 thought, my perspective is that. There's some certain jurisdictions where you have no choice. I mean, you you just have to issue the refunds, right? And then some other airlines are are doing it because they're really paying attention to putting customers first. So is there somewhere in between that we can come up with a solution that that customers who need their money... I mean, the the non-refundable fares are typically 
at the lower, like they, they don't they don't cost as much as refundable fares. So there's a reason why people buy these these tickets. So is there some consideration for maybe there is somewhere in between? No, not at all, and and everything. There is some other creative solution that we can come up, come up with, where the airlines and the customers both find uh, find some kind of solution that's satisfactory to both of them. Difficult dilemma for sure. Thank you so much for joining us with your perspective. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. That's Ramina Dalla, assistant prof at the University of Guelph. And Dave, I mean, it's a difficult one, right? Because you can't, if you want the airlines to refund the money. And therefore, you're hoping people will fly with you later. Well, there may not be an airline if they refund all that money. But well, I understand, too, but people need their money back because a lot of them may really, really need that cash right now. And that's the dilemma, right? I think uh, another point that she made was um, what are the fares going to look like when we're back up and running fully? Are they going to be way more expensive? Are they going to be cheaper? We don't know that, right? I mean, I'm going to go with more expensive. Kind of a comparable with uh, StubHub. You know, we had bought rodeo tickets for the rodeo this Friday oh, that we're not going no. to, obviously. Um, but what they did is they gave us a credit, but they gave us an extra 20% on top of that credit. Okay. At but the same the airlines time, can't afford that. They've no, got they, none, they don't have the money to give back exactly what was paid to them. And at the same time, what's a hockey ticket going to look like oh, yeah. when, when we're allowed back in the stadiums? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I, I get, do I have enough, right? Or am I going to be spending now more money yep. than I already had spent just to use up the credit that I have gotten, and in these times when people are struggling with with money, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a tough one. I know, and then, and then you know, I heard somebody else say, "Well, if you don't have the money, then why were you buying airline tickets in the first place?" Well, some and some people said, "Well, I did have the money, but <laughs> but, uh, but I pan- don't now." But then the pandemic hit. Oh, that's it's a tough one. You know, it's a catch twenty two in this case, but uh, will be interesting to see what happens. You know, by the way, there was a poll that just came out that most Canadians right now very uncomfortable flying. After the airlines relax their distancing requirements here in Alberta, 72% of Albertans are not interested in flying now that they've uh, opened up that middle seat. The discussion will continue, no doubt. 849 now and grizzly bears in Canada have adapted to humans in order to reduce their interaction with us. To talk about a new study that looked into bear behavior, we're joined by one of the co-authors, Clayton Lamb, who's also a researcher working with the U of A, UBC and University of Montana. Hi, Clayton. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's really quite a fascinating study. And as we humans encroach more and more into bear territory, those bears are learning to adapt. Tell us all about it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we we really wanted to know uh, how grizzly bears are living near people. And um, this work really started from a place of genuine curiosity. We were seeing grizzly bears wander through people's yards or in conflict with people. And we kind of wondered, how does this play out for bear populations? And is it working for them? And you know, our results really showed that uh, these bears are going nocturnal, so using more time at night, um, and that reduces conflict and increases their um, survival. So instead of being awake and about in the day when we are awake and about, they're now coming out more at night. Then that was not something that we'd seen in grizzly behavior before? Yeah, and I fe- yeah, exactly. And I think it was something that we maybe suspected, but you know, we really put the hard data to it. We pooled uh, about 40 years of uh, telemetry data, so um, following animals with GPS collars, and it, you know, it was about 2,700 grizzly bears in total with uh, DNA information and collars. And you know, we really got a big picture all across BC of this uh, this pattern. And sort of like, are they stay? Are they sleeping then through the day and staying up all night, or a little bit of each, or what? What is it you you found in this study? Yeah, exactly. So they're basically sleeping in uh, sort of. 
adjacent forests during the day and then coming uh, close to town and crossing highways and those sort of things, sort of navigating these sort of complex uh, human-dominated landscapes during the night. Um, and they'll, you know, um, eat roadkill on the side of the highway or sometimes get into conflict um, if they go out during the day and you see them at your apple tree or something like that. So it is still obviously a challenging landscape for them to um, navigate, but they're doing their best by uh, spacing away and using times and we're not as active. It really is fascinating because, you know, with the hundreds and hundreds of bears out there, we certainly hear about an interaction or two every year, but not to the number that we should if they were all out and about. So it makes sense that they have, you know, found a way to to live and thrive with us still being in their territory. Yeah, exactly. I and mean, we really see that um, at an individual level. So, you know, we have uh, an adult female here in the Valley. I live in Fernie and she has two cubs and uh, she's almost strictly nocturnal and she wanders around and she should be seen by people um but again it's at night so she's never seen there's never any uh reports of her but you know if you follow her on the gps she's right near where if it was during the day she'd be seen by hundreds and hundreds of people so is this helping us see the numbers in the grizzly population increase then yeah exactly yeah i mean so those bears are finding uh ways to kind of coexist in these novel landscapes i mean the the sort of bleaker side of the story is that the um the mortality rates still exceed what those females can produce uh, for young. So, you know, the persistence of bears in these landscapes is still kind of propped up by being um, connected to adjacent wilderness areas with more secure bear populations. So, you know, the odd immigrant kind of wanders in still to kind of backfill those mortalities. Well, it's a fascinating study. Thank you so much for sharing your findings with us. Thank you. That's Clayton Lamb. He's a study co-author and a researcher with the U of A, among other universities, talking about how grizzly bears are are learning to adapt and uh, go nocturnal to avoid us, the humans.